We read the Holy Scriptures today in Genesis chapter 2. The text for the sermon will begin at verse 18, and we will include through verse 23, saving the last two verses for another sermon. So verses 18 through 23 will be the text. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, That is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is bdellium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hidekel. That is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. This is where our text begins. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names unto to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found and help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. 
we read God's word that far. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the text that we consider this afternoon, as you can well see, has great practical application to the whole area of dating and marriage. What the text teaches us was not only true for Adam, as some people think, when God said about Adam It is not good for him to be alone. God was not merely saying that about Adam, but God was there teaching something that is true regarding every man, something that is always true. It is always true that it is not good for the man to be alone. What God then did in the beginning, he still does today. If you look in the back of your Psalter and find the marriage form, you will find there this quote, that when God brought Adam his wife, he was, quote, witnessing thereby that he doth yet, as with his hand, bring unto every man his wife, end quote. So in this text, our young adults Our young people in the congregation can find much comfort, encouragement, wisdom. But also we who are married can can find much cause for thanksgiving, as well as comfort, encouragement, and admonition in our roles in marriage. Now before we get into all of that, let's step back for a moment and remember the broader context, and let's remind ourselves of All that God did that day, this happened too on the sixth day of creation. A literal day, the sixth day. On that day, God made all of the land animals, the cattle, the beasts, and the creeping things. God then made his crowning achievement, his greatest and most important achievement, human beings. We've already considered that in chapter 1. Chapter 1 pointed out to us that God made human beings in his own image, male and female. But chapter 2 shows us more detail about how God did that and when God did that. Chapter 2 shows us that God created the man first. He created Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. He then took Adam and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. God then commanded Adam before Eve was created. He commanded Adam regarding the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then God made those animals that he had created earlier that day to pass before Adam two by two by two. The beasts of the field, the cattle, and the birds of the air, but not the fish of the sea. It was only then that God created the first woman out of the man. So as we reflect on that context, it underscores to us the truth, first of all, that 
Adam was the head of the whole human race. Adam, the man, was first. And just as Adam is the head of the whole family of the human race, every man who has a family is the head of his home as well. But in the second place, it underscores the truth that it was not good for man to be alone. God created Adam first. He didn't create them at the same time, but he created Adam first, and Adam was alone. And that was not good. This underscores the truth that man has been created by God to be a social, relational creature. It is inherent to our human nature to need to be in relationship with other human beings. With that in mind, let's consider the text together and go into some more depth. The general title of the series is In the Beginning. Now the title for the sermon today, God's Creation of the Woman. Notice, first of all, the man's need of the woman. In the second place, the Lord's forming of the woman. And thirdly, the God-given role of the woman. We turn to our text and we discover immediately the man's need for the woman. Verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. God said this. He said it. When we read that God said that, we understand that the idea is not that God suddenly realized that there was a terrible flaw in his creation of the human beings, sort of like a painter who has begun painting on his canvas, and he stops for a moment and steps back and looks at that painting and realizes there is something not quite right here. There is a flaw here. I have to fix something here. That's not how we have to understand it. God has a perfect plan from eternity, and he carries out that plan in perfect order. But when we read in the text, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, we are to understand that God is teaching us something. God is teaching us something about ourselves as human beings. God said that to teach us. God said that, and then he inspired Moses to write that over a thousand years after he said it, so that we would have it here in the scriptures so that we would learn something about ourselves. It is not good for the man to be alone. Why was it not good for the man to be alone? Some have thought that the text is merely teaching us that it was not good for the man to be alone because without the woman, he was not able to reproduce and multiply and replenish the earth. He needed the woman in order to do that. Now, there's... Perhaps some truth to that, but that's not the whole reason for it, or even the main reason. Could not God have created Adam with the ability to reproduce without a woman? Of course he could have. God is almighty. He can do anything he pleases. God created man and woman, and he was pleased that man would reproduce with the woman. He didn't have to do it that way, but he did. But that's not the main reason why it was not good. The main reason is that God intended from all eternity that man would be an image and likeness of himself. But as long as man was alone, 
He could not fulfill that fully and completely because God is not alone. God himself is not a lonely God. He has never been lonely. He will never be lonely. God is a triune God. We see that right here in Genesis as well. In chapter 1, we noticed already last time, a few weeks ago, that when God proceeded to make man, we read, and God said, let us make man in our image. Remember that? God wasn't speaking to the angels. He wasn't speaking to the animals. He was speaking within himself, to himself. So also in our text, we read again, verse 18, And the Lord God said, who was he speaking to when he said that? He wasn't speaking to Adam because he was talking about Adam. Again, he wasn't speaking to the angels. He was speaking to himself, within himself. God is not alone. God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all different distinct persons, but they dwell together in the most intimate and sweet relationship, fellowship, friendship, companionship. And God intended that humanity would be in his image and likeness. So it was not good for man to be alone. He must have a companion. He must have a friend. He must have another person of the same nature as himself, another human being. Adam could relate to the animals in a certain way. He could also relate especially to God, above all. But God wanted Adam to be a reflection and a resemblance of himself, and therefore it wasn't good yet. It wasn't complete when Adam was yet alone. God is teaching here in the text that we human beings, therefore, have an inherent need, a created need, need for intimate relationships with other human beings. And more specifically, God is teaching here that we human beings, most of us anyway, have a need for that most intimate and fundamental relationship, the one between a husband and his wife. In general, it is not good for a man to be alone and to live his life alone without a wife. There are exceptions to that. There are men to whom God has given the gift of single life, of celibacy. He has given them the ability to live chastely, to live in contentment and happiness in the single life, like the Apostle Paul. Paul was never married. He was happy. He was content And he devoted himself to the service of the Lord. But that is an exception and not the rule. Genesis lays down the rule for us human beings. And that rule is, it is not good for a man to be alone and to live his whole life without a wife. The Roman Catholic Church has flipped it around and said, it is not good for man to be married, but it is better to be alone. That's why the Pope is not married. That's why the bishops are not married and the priests, because... In that church, they're not allowed to get married. It is considered to be a holier life to be single. And we see all of the troubles that have come in the Roman Catholic Church through that policy. No, 
It is not good for a man to be alone. If you read the Reformers like John Calvin and Martin Luther and their writings in the time of the Reformation, this was one of the truths that God restored to his church through that great Reformation. It's the honorableness, the goodness of marriage. It is not good for a man to be alone. It is good for man to have a wife, to have another person in his life, a companion and a friend. God wanted Adam to know and appreciate that. He wanted Adam to feel that. That's why he caused all the animals to walk past him that day. We read in the text, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him and help me for him. The very next thing we read is that God created the animals. Now, he had already done that. But now, in Genesis 2, we read about that for the first time. God formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found and help meet for him. God caused Adam to feel his aloneness in a very interesting way. God had a couple of purposes in this. In the first place, God wanted to see Adam, his male human creature, exercising his role as head of the creation and king over the other creatures. God was giving them dominion over all the animals. And that's why God brought them to man that day to see what he would call them. Now that was a miraculous action. The animals don't ordinarily all pass by us human beings in an orderly line. Usually they roam about in the fields, instinctually seeking after food and drink. We know that God is constantly directing the animals by his providential hand, but he uses their instinct to eat and drink and all the rest. But on this day, the first day of their creation, God did a miracle and he guided the animals in pairs to walk past Adam, the human king of creation. God wanted to see what Adam would call them. That doesn't mean God didn't know their names. Those animals already had names. The names of those animals, like the names of all other creatures, were known by God from eternity because in Scripture, a name is the revelation or manifestation of what something is. God knew the names of all his creatures. He knew precisely what each creature was. But God wanted to see Adam recognizing those names and calling them by the names that they already had because that would be an exercise of his kingly and prophetic function as a human being. That's what God delighted to see. That's why he brought the animals to man in the first place, and all the different kinds of animals walked past him. The different kinds of cattle, the different kinds of beasts, the lions, the tigers, the bears, the dinosaurs, the crocodiles, all the different kinds of the birds fluttered down before Adam that day. And when Adam looked at each one, 
he could see with his original created intelligence and spirituality the name of that creature. And he called it by that name. Those weren't the same names that we know for those creatures today. Those names are not known to us anymore. Since man has fallen into sin, man isn't able to see those names. And I think that maybe when we get into glory in the new heavens and the new earth, maybe, maybe then we will be able to know the names of all the creatures again. That was one of God's purposes, but God had another purpose, which I think really is the main purpose. God wanted Adam to see that he was alone. That's why this is placed right here, embedded in our text, in which God is showing us something about ourselves, that the man needs the woman. It's not good for the man to be alone. So God caused the animals to come by, male and female, male and female. And Adam saw that. He hadn't seen that before. When he was first created, he was alone, but he didn't notice. He was created in perfection, righteousness, holiness. He loved God. He had no sorrows. He had no sadness. He had no depression. He had no discontentment. Those are all things that we are tempted to experience when we feel lonely. We're tempted to feel sad, to feel sorrowful, to be discontent with our way of life. But Adam didn't have that. He didn't even realize that he was alone. He had this relationship with God, his creator, and he was content. He was happy in his God. God wanted him to see and to recognize, I'm alone. So he caused the animals to walk past him. And Adam noticed, male and female, male and female. But he looked at himself, and he looked next to himself, and the scripture says, verse 20, for Adam there was not found and help meet for him. That means Adam himself did not find a woman, a female, of his kind of creature. And there we can see some practical application to ourselves already. God wanted Adam to see that he was alone. God causes us to feel that as well. When we are little children, we don't realize that we are alone. When we are in our homes, hopefully, in a godly and Christian home, we have our father and we have our mother, we have our brothers or sisters, and we are part of the family unit, and we feel lots of love and relationship and connections. But when we become young people, we start to realize, little by little, that we are alone. Now, we are never truly alone. We have our parents. We have our friends. We have our siblings. But we start to realize I don't have a spouse yet. We start to feel that there's a void. There's something missing. There's something lacking. I'm not whole yet. I'm not complete yet. There must be another half of me that is out there somewhere, and it has not yet come to me. Sometimes when we are young people, 
if we have to wait a long time for the Lord to bring us our husband or wife, there is the great temptation of loneliness. Some young people do not experience that. Some only a little, some to a great extent. There's a loneliness that can set in, in which we begin to long for that person with whom we can share our life and walk down life together with and build a home with, a person we can love and who can love us back. And we can become lonely. And right there, there's a very practical warning for all of our young people, a warning given in great love for you. Many, many young people have become lonely and have rushed into marriage in a sort of state of desperation. After a brief time of dating, after a passionate romance, without really spending the time to sit down and get to know each other, without really taking the time to know that person, who is this guy? Who is this girl? What does he or she believe? What do they truly and deeply believe? What are their deepest values and convictions? They feel that they have found true love. True love has come to me. They feel this sense of passion, this strong feeling of attraction, and they think they don't need anything else. Love will carry us along. And so they rush headlong into marriage thinking this is the woman or the man of my dreams. And I don't need to know anything more about this person because I have this magnetic attraction. He fills my void or she is what I've always been waiting for. And many, many young people who have rushed into marriage that way, five or less years later, have deeply regretted it. As they've come to realize, I don't know this person. I didn't know he thought that. I didn't know he believed that. I didn't know that was his values, his convictions. Young people, this is a loving admonition to you. Take the time to get to know the person. You might be lonely. You might want that person to come into your life sooner rather than later. If you are single... Be patient. If you are dating, take the time to get to know each other. When God created Eve, or Adam, he brought to Adam another human being who was created in the image of God like himself. That's what you need. You need a person who is renewed in the image of God through Jesus Christ, like you. You need to look for a person who bears the fruits of the Spirit in his life or her life, who shows those fruits, who shows the fruits of being a Christian, of being a believer. You have to sit down and talk. You have to open up and be honest. You have to have conversations about faith and life. You have to talk about your plans and expectations for marriage for children, for your home life, for your church life, for your family life with relatives, for your work life. Who will be the breadwinner? 
who will be the homemaker. You need to talk about those things. You need to know what the other person is thinking. It's worth it. It's worth the effort. Loneliness is a very dreadful thing. Those of us who haven't experienced it, or haven't experienced it at any great level, perhaps struggle to relate to those who do. I always experienced that as a pastor whenever I visited the widows, and I visited a lot of widows in my first congregation on a regular basis, some widowers too. The plight of the widow and the widower is loneliness, always loneliness. They want someone to talk to again. They need someone to talk to. Single young people can also experience that. Even when they have their parents and siblings and friends all around them, you might not realize it, they're lonely. They want someone to share their life with. Sometimes even married people who have grown distant from their husband or wife can experience times of loneliness. Whenever we experience loneliness, God calls us to be patient. He calls us to be content. But especially, he calls us into his loving arms. You see, Adam was not actually fully, truly alone. He had God. He had a relationship with God. And that relationship was one that he could never lose as one of God's elect people. When we experience loneliness, God calls us into his loving arms and says, Come to me. I love you. I am with you. Always. And you know why that is so sure and secure? Because God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to suffer alone on the cross so that we would never be alone. There's a popular song, Christian song, For me he was forsaken, for me he died alone. Think of Jesus, alone, forsaken by his disciples, forsaken by the leaders of the Jews, forsaken by the Romans, even forsaken by his Father in heaven, as he hung affixed on the cross, pouring out his lifeblood in love for you and for me. He died alone, alone. He passed through the depths of hell and suffered the wrath and judgment of God against our sins, alone, because it was not good in God's eyes for us to be alone for all eternity. That's why he sent his son, so that we would never truly be alone. We're not. That's what we have to hold on to throughout all the stages of life. But in the beginning, God is revealing in our text that he created man to be an image and likeness of himself. That's why it was not good for Adam to be alone apart from Eve, for the man to be alone without a wife. Therefore, God formed the woman out of the man so that they would be able to reflect and resemble God as two human beings. When God supplied the need of Adam, he did not create another man. In our culture today, you would think that's how Genesis reads. 
that God simply created Adam out of the dust, then he created another man out of the dust. He gave to the first man another man, two men who are equal. Nor did he create the woman out of the dust, the man out of the dust and the woman out of the dust. But he created first the man out of the dust, then he created the woman out of the man. That's what he tells us in our text. We're told that after Adam saw all the animals pass by and realized his deep need for the woman, God put him to sleep. God put him into a deep sleep. A sleep that was so deep that Adam would not feel what God was about to do to him. Because God was about to do something to him. And after Adam fell into the deepest of sleeps, God opened him up. God miraculously, wondrously, by a miracle that we can't explain, opened up Adam's flesh. And he took a rib out of Adam, a literal, physical bone. He plucked it out of Adam's chest. And then he closed up the flesh instead thereof, the text says, which means... God miraculously sewed him back together again. He didn't feel a thing. No pain, no blood, no scar tissue. He was perfectly whole again after that surgery. And then God, with that rib, that bone from the side of Adam, created a whole woman. Once again, a miracle and a wonder that we cannot explain a miracle that is so powerful and so amazing that the profane reader of the text says it must be a myth. There's no way that that literally happened. That must be a myth. But it's not a myth. God is teaching us in this scripture what literally happened, what he actually did. These truths are based on historical facts. God literally took that rib out of Adam, and out of that rib... He created a woman to be a perfect counterpart of the man. The woman that God created out of the man was like him in many ways. She was a human being just like him, created in the image of God just like him, with a body very similar to his. And yet... Being a body and soul, a human being, a rational, moral creature just like the man, she was also very different than the man. There were major differences between her and the man, which were remarkable and noteworthy simply upon observation. The features, the shape of her body was different from his. Even some of the features of her soul, her spirit, her mind, her way of thinking, her way of feeling, Different from the man. Different, yet alike. A match. A counterpart. God then woke Adam up out of his deep sleep. And as Adam opened his eyes, he saw her for the first time. And when he laid his eyes upon her, he knew exactly who she was. He knew exactly what she was. He knew exactly what had happened. That's evident from the text. Although someone might think when reading the text, how can that be? How did Adam know he was in a deep sleep? We don't know exactly how he knew. 
but he knew. In that perfect state, created in the image and likeness of God, he had powers of intellect unlike ours, and he was able to see in that woman what she was and who she was. And immediately he felt drawn to her, attracted to her. He loved her from the moment he saw her. And we are told in the text that Adam spoke, verse 23, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam knew exactly what she was, just like when he looked at those animals. He knew what they were. He knew the names of those creatures. So also when he looked at the woman, he knew she was something altogether different, altogether wonderful and unique. He said, this This creature is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That was a true statement. He knew that. He knew that this woman, this magnificent creature that God made and brought to him, was made out of his own bones and his own flesh. She wasn't made out of the dust. She wasn't made simply by the word of God. She was made out of himself. And that's how he saw her. That's how he received her. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. In the Hebrew, isha, because the Hebrew word for man is ish. So similar to English, man and woman, very closely related words. Ish and isha. She shall be called isha, woman, because she was taken out of the man. She's related to the man coming out of him. God created them, male and female. The woman out of the man so that they were inextricably linked together. Bone of the same bone, flesh of the same flesh. Adam first, the head of all mankind. Eve created out of him. In Adam, the whole human race is united through Eve, the mother of the whole human race. Now at last, they could fully reflect and resemble God himself. Now there were two who could enjoy that intimate relationship, fellowship, companionship, and reflect the nature of God. Notice Something very practical in the text. Verse 22. After God made the woman, we are told that God brought her onto the man. He brought her onto the man. We might easily read over that and think nothing of it, but as I said in the introduction, the marriage form in the back of our Psalter says that this text means God doth yet, as with his hand, bring unto every man his wife. We could also add, God doth with his hand bring unto every woman her husband. Now again, we recognize some people live in single life, and that's good and blessed by God as well. But most people will enter into the married state. How does that happen? How how do two people become married? How do two people recognize that they are meant for each other? And enter into the married state. Text says, God brings 
to Adam, his wife. He brings her to him. God did that. We see that God is his sovereign. He is sovereign over the coming of two people together and entering into marriage. Completely sovereign over that. What a comfort that is. God brought to Adam his wife. I'm sure that some young people who would like to be married could wish that God would just bring them their wife that way, that God would just put them into a deep sleep someday and they would wake up and suddenly there that person would be, smiling and walking into their arms. How wonderful would that be? I remember when I was still single, one of my friends had a very interesting theory. and His theory was that he would know when God had brought his wife to him because she would drop out of the sky in a parachute and land right in front of him. And that's how he would know. The interesting thing is, although that didn't happen, something just as well similar to that did happen in his life. When he least expected it, he didn't date other girls. All of a sudden, God caused their paths to cross, and he brought to him his wife. That's what God does. All of us here who are married could tell you the story of how we met our husband or our wife. We could tell you probably the day Although, for some of us, perhaps, God does that when we're still little children. Childhood or high school sweethearts. Sometimes it's not until we're adults. And we've never met that person before, and we've lived 20 or 30 years of our life, and then God brings the person into our life. Sometimes in very ordinary ways, and sometimes in very extraordinary and mysterious ways that leave a husband and wife the rest of their days in wonderment at how God brought them together. But the point of the text here is one of comfort for all of us young people. You don't have to worry about it. God is in complete control. He will bring to you your wife or your husband. And just as with all things, that doesn't mean that we just sit in a chair and wait for someone to parachute out of the sky. There is much to be said that we seek a spouse, that we mingle with other godly young people where we know we can find Christian and believing young people who bear the fruits of the Spirit of Christ like us. There's much to be said for that. Are we mingling among the young people of the world? Well, we're not going to be brought, probably, a godly spouse in that place. It's possible. But so much better, isn't it? to mingle among godly young people, and surely God will bring us a spouse there. But as we keep our eyes open, young people, we do not have to worry or fret about it at all. I knew a man once who dated many times, and he became very discontent with single life. But it was at that moment when finally he realized that he had to be content, and he was content. That was when the Lord brought him his spouse. Sometimes that's how it goes. God brings to every man his wife and to every woman her husband. Now one final point from this text. The Lord said, I will make him and help meet for him. 
Adam found not and help meet for him. Then God created the woman out of the man and brought her to him as a help meet for him. What does that mean? Here we find the God-given role of the woman, the wife. A help meet for him. That word meet in the original Hebrew is somewhat difficult to translate, but literally it simply means in front of him. Adam woke up and there she was, right in front of him, a help in front of him, opposite to him, parallel to him. But the idea of that word then is that this woman corresponded to him. She complimented him. She completed him. He was alone. He wasn't yet complete, but she completed him. She filled what he lacked. She was perfectly suited and fitted and matched to him as a human being, just like him, made in the image of God, just like him, perfectly suited to Adam. That's the idea of meat. She was a help meat or a helper who was perfectly suited to him, a helper. That word is much easier to understand. A helper is someone who helps. A helper is someone who assists, who supports. God created the woman to help her husband, to help him in all things that he needed help with. That is, all of his true needs. God did not create the woman to help her husband to sin. Sometimes there are husbands who think that they need something, but really what they think they need is just a sinful lust or desire. As we all know from the story of Genesis 3, the woman actually would help her husband to sin in the end. But God did not create her for that purpose. He created her to help him with all of his true lawful needs. He was incomplete. He needed her. He could not do everything that he had to do without her. He needed her not only to be able to reproduce, since God created us that way, but he needed her then also to help with the raising of those children that she would bring forth, to keep the home, to care for the children, to raise the children, to clean their clothes and cook their meals, to help him with paying of the bills. He created her to help him with emotional support, especially after the fall. The man needs emotional support, a listening ear, an encouraging word, a wise bit of advice, deeds of affection and love. He needs those things. God created her to help him with those things. But most importantly, to help him with his spiritual needs. We men are very weak, spiritually weak as well. But God gives us our wives to help us, to support us spiritually, to support us in our walk with God, to support us in our faith. A helper, perfectly suited to her husband. That does raise the question, especially in our day and age, about whether it is lawful for the wife to work outside of the home, and is that a lawful way for her to help her husband? Obviously, that's a very difficult question. The scriptures do not answer it absolutely, but the scriptures do answer that question. 
I think, for example, of Proverbs 31, where we find the beautiful passage of the virtuous woman whose place, whose price is far above rubies. We're told that the heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, so that she shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. She is like the merchant's ships. She bringeth her food from afar. She riseth also while it is yet night and giveth meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. She considereth a field and buyeth it. With the fruit of her hands she planteth a vineyard. She girdeth her loins with strength and strengtheneth her arms. She perceiveth that her merchandise is good. Her candle goeth not out by night. She layeth her hands to the spindle and her hands to hold the distaff. In that we find a picture of a woman who helps her husband. And the focus and the center of her helping is in the home. She is giving meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. Verse 21, she is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She maketh herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. All of her life revolves around that home. And yet, at the same time, she finds a little bit of time to go out and consider a field and to buy it. Her husband trusts her. He has given her money, or perhaps through the selling of her scarlet and using of her hands at the spindle and the distaff, she is actually earning a little bit of money herself somehow while still focusing on her labors in the home. In the book of Titus chapter 3, the Apostle Paul also speaks about this. Chapter 2, rather. Paul says to Titus, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, charity, and patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. And now notice this. The aged women will teach the young women to be sober. Notice, Paul tells Titus to teach the older women to teach the younger women. Does that mean Titus is not supposed to teach the women? No, he is. But it's almost better when the aged women teach the younger women, isn't it? That they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home. There you have that same theme, that her life is focused on the home good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. There is what the scripture has to say about her God-given role, a blessed and noble task. Modern women, of course, recoil at that. I don't mean modern, godly, virtuous Christian women, But the modern woman in society, doesn't she recoil at that? Doesn't she hate that? Doesn't she reject what our text says? All of it? In the desire for equality, 
Equality in the home, equality in the church, equality in the state. Complete equality. But on the other hand, how many modern men and how many men throughout the ages of history have made use of our text to abuse their wives, to treat their wives as if they are their slaves whom they may use and abuse, whose only purpose of existence is to fulfill all their desires or be punished. How many men? There are errors on both sides. The Christian marriage will be one in which the husband recognizes his role and the wife recognizes her role and they dwell together in love. The husband exercising godly leadership. The wife, godliest submission and assistance. I recommend to you some of the very good books that have been written recently and in the past in our churches. When I was 18 years old, my dad gave to me the book Leaving Father and Mother by Reverend C. Hanko, which he wrote to young people. It's an excellent, short little book that I recommend to you young people about dating. Some recent books as well, Dating Differently by Reverend Josh Inglesma and Preparing for Dating and Marriage by Professor Grease. A new book just came out by Reverend Stephen Key, Living Joyfully in Marriage. These are great books for us to read, whether single or married. Do we not need to grow in our marriages? So husbands, let us love our wives as Christ loved us. Christ loves us. He gave himself for us as our head. Husbands, let us love our wives, care for them, nurture them. Let us live joyfully with them and dwell with them as men of understanding, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. 1 Peter 2, or 3 rather. And wives, may you understand too from the scriptures the blessed role that God has given to you to help your husbands, to assist them in all lawful things. Your husbands need you to help them. They can't do it on their own. We husbands consider you a tremendous gift. The Proverbs speak in many places. The man who finds a godly woman has found a great and blessed treasure. The godly and virtuous woman is the crown of her husband. Her price is far above rubies. And guess what? We husbands and children, we will rise up and call you blessed. Amen. Father, we give thee thanks for thy word of instruction and application. We thank thee for the gift of our wives and mothers. We pray that thou would bless them through this message, encourage them in their godly Christian life. And may we, as husbands and men, also be thankful and appreciative for the gift of our spouse. Be with our young people. May they find comfort in their relationship to thee through Jesus Christ, who died on the cross alone, that we might have that relationship. And we pray, provide for these young people a godly husband or godly wife at thy appointed time. 